The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Esteban Oriel's story begins with him working the door at some of the music clubs here in Los Angeles during the 80s. This led to him eventually becoming a tour manager for both Cypress Hill and House of Pain. It was during this time on the road that he borrowed a camera from his father, who was himself a photographer, and he began making pictures of his experiences while on tour. But when the tours ended, he kept on shooting which soon led him to become an in-demand photographer and video director. And he's photographed people like Eminem, Dennis Hopper, 50 Cent, Danny Trejo, Kim Kardashian, Al Pacino, and Robert De Niro. His photographs of Los Angeles are of an LA you don't typically see in magazines or in the movies. This is the other LA that's east of the 405, which captures the richness and the character of people that are just as important to the story of this city as the celebrities that we are just too familiar with. Esteban is definitely an L.A. photographer. Uh, Esteban, thank you, man. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I always like interviewing people in in person because I think the whole vibe is very different. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but I also like the fact that I'm talking to another LA brother. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, born and raised. I talk to a lot of people from all over the world, and it's really neat to be able to talk to a, a, a someone uh, who came up in the city I grew up in. Yeah, and uh, I know it's always been very important to you and your work. Um, where did you grow up in LA? I was born in Santa Monica at St. John's Hospital, and grew up pretty much all on the West Side. And when I was about eighteen. I sold one of my dad's paintings, and uh, I bought us some tickets to Europe, uh-huh. and that got my uh, travel bug, you know, going. And uh, I started working with a, a hip hop group in the '90s, and toured all around the world with them. Went to 44 countries, and since then, uh, I'm up to about 56 countries now. So, a half of my life, I was you know, strictly in L.A., and the other half, I've been traveling the world, so, you know, I've gotten to see a lot of different stuff and get a lot of culture. You mentioned your dad was a a painter. He was also a photographer. Um, I know your parents divorced when you were very young. Were you living with your moms, with your dad? Yeah, my parents divorced when I was three, Um, and... uh, my mom was from back east. She's Italian. My dad was from out here. He's Mexican. So, uh, you know, she was out here by herself pretty much. Uh-huh. And when I was, when I'd be with my mom, you know, on throughout most of the year, you know, it was just me and her. And she was disabled. So we're on, you know, welfare and Medi-Cal and that whole trip. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I'd go with my dad on holidays or the summer, I would go with his family down to San Diego, and he had a, you know, the big Mexican family. Yeah. Uh, he had 10 brothers and sisters. My my grandma had, you know, 10 kids. So I had, you know, in you know, about 20 cousins, you know, with, with throughout the family. So it was, it was uh, you know, pretty cool growing up like that, you know. I related more to my Mexican family than my Italian family because they were from back east from uh, Ohio. And you didn't get to see them very much? No, I've probably been out there maybe five or six times, you know, for family visits. Your, your mom became disabled when you were around eight years old? Was, yeah. Was it an accident, a disease? Or? Uh, she was a, uh, a nurse, and she was only about five feet, one or two, and through lifting people all the time, and she was in the emergency uh you know, it just tweaked her back out, and she ended up getting a surgery, and that went bad, and and uh, she got a couple more surgeries to try to fix it, and they never could fix it. So she was pretty much, you know, done from there and in pain her whole life. And 
on medication, you know, pain pills all her life. So it must have been kind of rough for you, not not only sort of living that yourself, but seeing your mom struggle. Yeah, it that's kind of what made me the. I like to say like, uh, you know, that kind of kicked off my hustle, you know, because I saw my mom and dad. They weren't, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't really have much when they mm-hmm. when I was growing up. So I kind of wanted to have more when I got older. You know, so that's where I kind of got my drive from is, you know, seeing that. And we were always, you know, uh, my mom would always get like credit cards and put everything on the credit card and pay it off, you know, little by little, like 10 bucks a month. And it was just like a like a it was a struggle, you know, and I got I felt bad for her, you know, because she mm-hmm. she had to do it all because to raise me, you know, and. Mm-hmm. And it kind of put like the a little bit of pressure on me. So I'd say I started working a job when I was about 12 years old. I'd work summer mm-hmm. jobs and I'd always help out people and, you know, do their, you know, yard, yard work or take out their trash or, you know, whatever little kind of hustle I could do as a kid. I would do it washing cars, whatever, and uh, make my money like that and help out my mom. You were working construction in the daytime, and you were working as a bouncer at night at some of the clubs here in L.A. Yeah. Um, and that's how you got involved in the music industry. So why don't you tell us that story and how you ended up becoming a, a tour manager? I was doing construction during the day, every day, so that was like 10 to 12 hours a day, and then I'd go work at night at the clubs, and I was able to, because I was a doorman, I met all the local music groups like Ice T and the Rhyme Syndicate, which Everlast, that later became you know from House of Pain, was a mm-hmm. part of, and they would come to the club. Uh, the guys from Cypress Hill, Booyah Tribe, like Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone, you know, Truly Disgraces, all those bands. I knew all the people that worked there because. When I when I wasn't working at the club, I would go to the club. So uh, I knew everybody. It was like a big family here in L.A. And uh, the guys from Cypress Hill, uh, DJ Muggs, I guess, you know, he liked the way I carried myself at the door. I was respectful, but I didn't let nobody walk on me at the same time. So he was like, you know, he'd be perfect for that job, you know, because he could uh, take care of business and then at the same time, you know, doesn't let nobody, you know, walk on him. So that's what kind of job it is. You know, you got to kind of be stern and and, but be respectful because everywhere you go on a tour, you have to go back there. So you would see people like act up at a hotel room or, you know, in the dressing room or, you know, they just do the rock and roll thing and destroy stuff. But what they didn't know is the next year they had to come back there or or not, you know. So, so as a tour manager, you're sort of managing the, the talent, but you're also doing what else are you, are you responsible for? Well, originally the way Muggs explained it was you just have to make sure they show up to their interviews on time and, you know, check them into hotels and make sure they get on their flights and all that stuff or, or drive the van. If you guys are doing promo stuff, you know, you drive the van. And it was just the four of us, me and the three guys in the group. And that's what it originally started out as. And it seemed like no big deal. And, and the, the whole the whole trick to it was, was uh, we'll pay for everything, but you won't get paid. So I asked both of my employers before the construction and the club, I was like, hey, you know, I got this opportunity. What do you guys think? Because, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, I don't want to be, with, you know, jobless. Right. And they said, well, no matter what, you have a job here. So go check it out. Go try it. And then, you know, have fun. And um, right away, the, the song took off. It was called Jump Around. And yeah, right. yeah. we started getting paid and I started getting paid and. It, it worked out perfect, and uh, it turned into a, a lot bigger responsibility real quick. Like uh, I started having to book the tours, and which is you know you uh, set up the travel, you set up the accommodations, and you pre-book all the shows. Like uh, there was a booking agent that would set up the shows. 
but it was up to me to call the venues and forward all the uh, the writer and the, the yeah. equipment writer and get everything set up to when we showed up. All the right equipment was there, the right wiring for our equipment, and then everything for our dressing room, and half of the money was paid, so I would collect the second half when I got there, and I'd take care of the bus driver's um, you know, float, it was called, and that was basically his pay and all his expenses with gas and tolls and parking. And I would take care of the bands per diems, which is they're spending money for food every day and the crew. And also the merchandise. I'd count in every T-shirt wow. and then count every T-shirt out at the end of the night and make sure that, you know, the money matched the shirts. So it turned into a bit, pretty big uh, responsibility, but, you know, I was ready for it. That's awesome. And you started picking up a camera because I think your dad encouraged you to sort of document that life. Is yeah. That right? In uh, 1989, I bought a car from a friend of mine. It was a 1964 Impala. And as I was learning the tour managing thing, I was simultaneously building a, a lowrider here in L.A. And I got involved in a car club. So when my dad, um, you know, he saw me in East L.A. with the car club. And then he saw me, you know, going on tour. And, he, you know, he was talking to me. And I, I was telling him, you know, all the different stories. Like, yeah, we go cruising here with the car clubs. And we hang out here and have barbecues and stuff. And then on the touring thing, you know, we were touring with this band that band. And we are in this city. And he was like, man, those are some cool stories. You should document all that. And I was like, oh, yeah. You know, I, I was like, who has time to do that, you know? I'm doing all the rest of the stuff. I don't have time to run around and take pictures of everybody. But uh, he gave me the camera, and I ended up taking it and, you know, pulling it out here and there. Not so much in the beginning, but as I got more comfortable with it, because it's kind of weird feeling to always be with a camera walking around and, Right away, when people see you, their eyes go to the camera. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what do you do? What do, what is that for? You know, what are you doing with that? You know, you could see in their head and their facial facial expressions. Like, they're looking at you like, oh no, is he gonna ask to take my picture? Or, you know, is he gonna take pictures of me when I'm not looking? Or they become self conscious, and it's just a weird vibe. You know, yeah. weird thing to to have and to do with you know people. But after you become comfortable, you know, you bring it out more and and you learn how to kind of uh, break the 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 walls down with people and you get in there and you get some, you know, good shots. And, you know, it's always about access and you have the ultimate access. You yeah. Know? And, and I think that's one of the reasons why your images um, prove to be so unique as compared to a lot of the stuff that was being done at the time, because this is sort of sort of like the, the beginning curve of the hip-hop era. You know, it's not like now where everybody has a camera and yeah. you know, everyone's got a, everybody's got a videographer and a still shooter or stuff they're going to put on YouTube and Instagram. You know, this was not like that back then. So what you were doing was really, really unique. Yeah, at that time, I think I was probably the only person on the tours that had a camera all the time because most of the people that would come to the shows were from magazines. Mm -hmm. That was one of the other things I had to set up was a press every day. I had a list of press and I had to fit the amount of interviews in like an hour time. So each, if there was four magazines or whatever that day, they'd get 15 minutes each. And um, those were the only people that were doing photos. They would either do them backstage while they were doing the interview or they'd get to shoot the first two songs of the band they came to interview. And seeing that, I realized that a lot of times they wouldn't get what they needed, you know? And I kind of felt bad. I was like, man, the guy doing the interview took up all the time and the photographer, you know, just got some, like, corny shot. Hmm you know, for a magazine or a newspaper. So I would start telling the, the people that set it up, hey, if you ever need any shots of them live on stage or backstage, you know, hanging out, you know, I have those pictures. And at that time, I had made up a little photo album of shots, and uh, I was showing it to the guys from the magazine. They're like, wow, you, you took these? I said, yeah. So they start buying them from me, you know, the usage rights. And before you know it, I was 
making money, you know, getting paid off of off of that. So I I kind of learned a little hustle, and I I tell the magazines, well, who else are you uh, interviewing today? And they tell me the other groups, and I say, well, you know, I have pictures of them too. So I just started shooting all the stuff backstage and shooting each band, you know, live shots. And before you know it, you know, I had all that, you know, now they call it content. And I had all that content to service magazines, you know, in all the different genres, rock and roll or hip hop or, you know, uh, car lifestyle culture. Yeah, yeah, and that that backstage stuff, that culture stuff, is really at the heart of what you do. You do. I mean, yeah. there are a lot of people out that go out there and photograph concerts. They photograph the performers on stage, but you were doing what was you were documenting lives. Yeah, it was pretty much. Uh, I would get you know all the show day stuff, but also too, I'd get like the days off. You know. Like the traveling, you know, stopping at truck stops, Mm -hmm. you know, eating and going to different places and catching them with the monuments and all the different, like, stuff that, uh, you know, you don't, like, people just think of tour, like, I'm pretty sure they just thought of, you know, you're going on tour and you just are either uh, doing the whole sex, drugs, rock and roll thing Mm -hmm. in hotel rooms or you're doing the, uh, you know, just going to play a show. But they don't realize, like, the whole day you're doing different stuff. You know, you're, you know, a lot of the times you're just driving on a bus, you know, down down these long, you know, lonely roads. There's nothing on them. So, you know, you get those cool car uh, bus shots of the band and the, you know, the guys hanging out in the bus, mm-hmm. you know, on those long drives. Or we pull over to uh, truck stops and go into these diners, you know, where all the truckers are get some cool shots of that or or you'd go to like uh bigger cities like paris and you you know go during the day while you're before you're waiting for your sound check or you have the day off the next day or the day before a show you go to the eiffel tower you know just going around doing different stuff you know not the the stereotypical stuff that everybody thinks that is about the touring life and we try and go you know do as much as we can of the you know, everyday life, you know, going and seeing more than just like a hotel room or backstage or a live show. So that's kind of what I was trying to catch. Yeah. Well, the reality of, uh, of tours is that they don't last forever. Yeah. Uh, at some point they have to, they have to end. Was that the impetus, you know, when all of a sudden you at, were at the end of, of a tour and you didn't have another one lined up? Was that the impetus for you to start trying to make more of a living as a photographer rather than a tour manager? Well, when the touring slowed down, when the um, because you're basically uh, you're touring as much as your record is selling. Hmm. If your record's not selling so much, you know you're not getting the request for the touring, and you know there's only so many promoters and and venues, and they have to cater to whoever's hot in all the different genres of music, of rock and alternative and country soul r&b hip-hop punk rock whatever you know whatever they're all is they have to divide up their venue into those you know different genres and and at the same time they have to get the hottest selling bands at that time which is constantly flipping so if you can stay hot and relevant and tour for all them years you know you're doing something right Mm -hmm. which is is hard to do you know a lot of people go on tour, but they suck at doing live shows. And that was one thing that our group always tried to do is make a bigger, better, you know, live show and give the crowd the most and do, uh, you know, take the crowd through like, like a wave, like a ride, you know, not just, you know, go in there and slam it out and, you know, kind of like a... Some people they look at it as like a job, and they'll go there and they'll play their hour and they leave and they're you know they're like oh, you know to them they're like oh man we gotta go play another hour you know yeah. and so they don't really care they just go and do the songs it's like you know it's not a it's not fun to them no more it's like they have to do it you know for the money and they hate the the other band members and stuff like that but we were all like friends all like brothers so 
we all loved going on tour and we had fun every time we go and and I think it came across you know like that on this on the stage on the show so we were able to tour for a long time but towards the end you know I think people started getting tired and you know after a 10-year run it was hard to keep albums you know with the with the same momentum as mm-hmm. the, as in you know the beginning when it was hot and you know the requests weren't coming in as much so I was like man I need to because I was only getting paid when we were on tour so I had to come up with you know another alternative to make money and I was doing a lot of photography while we when we'd come off a show so I decided I'm gonna uh you know cancel the the touring thing and just go with the the photography and that's kind of how it happened started I, I kind of got away from the touring life in 2005, and from there, you know, I've been doing the photography thing ever since. So That's you, how I make my living. So you, you started doing not just editorial work, but also commercial work, um, and commercial work is very different. So when was the, your first, you know, big commercial gig that allowed you to realize that you could make much more money than, than you might by licensing a, a photograph for a, for a magazine? Um, I'd say the album covers. You know, some uh-huh. of the the budgets were ranging anywhere from ten to thirty thousand. And uh, what myself and my partner Cartoon were trying to do at that time was we were trying to uh, get the whole job, the whole packaging job, where we'd shoot uh, publicity photos. Well, I would shoot publicity photos, and I would shoot the album cover. And then he would do the logo, and we'd both do our direction for the layout of the whole booklet yeah. with uh, one of our guys that did the the graphics work. And so some of those budgets got, you know, pretty hefty, and I was like, man, you know, if we could do one of these a month, that'd be great. We'd be living good. But the reality was, you know, it wasn't that easy, you know, to get one a month you know sometimes we get two or three a month and the budget would be you know one would be high and two would be low and we'd go two months without getting one you know so you know the the life of a freelance artist isn't as as uh, glorious as everybody thinks or as easy as everybody thinks yeah you you were uh we uh, made it look good put it that way in one of the uh, interviews that you did you said uh you know i'm always unemployed yeah you know and that's that's keep you fired up to to find that next job because it's yeah. not, not like you get a check every two weeks. Yeah, and you, you got to be Charlie Hustle. Yeah, every day. I mean, you may not be working that day and getting any money that day, but that doesn't mean you you don't have to be putting in a lot of work. Yeah, and you get tired. You know, like uh, it's hard to explain to people that don't live like that. But you know, eighty to ninety percent of your work, you're not getting paid for. You know, it's the hustling, the the work, mm-hmm. and it's like getting the jobs. That's the the most of the work. So when you do a paid job, it's that's the easiest day of them all. You know, you're like, oh man, this is so great. I'm getting ten, twenty, you know, thirty up to ninety grand. You know, some people get you know a couple hundred for a day's work. You know, if they're doing the big jobs and uh. You know, on those days, you're like, you know, yeah, you kick ass and you work 10, 12 hours a day and you're making this incredible imagery. But the hard work is, you know, in between jobs. That's yeah. the hardest part is trying to find the next job. And in between those jobs is when you were out there shooting the stuff that you, you're you known for out in the streets. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the L.A. Uh, culture. Uh, especially Latino Chicano culture, yeah. Uh, the, the the ladies that you photograph, the car yeah. culture, all of that stuff. Uh, tell us about you know why that stuff is so Im- important to you, and why you dedicate so much of your work to to those themes and those ideas and those subject matters. Well, there was a you know a love for the craft. You know is what what uh, what kept me going. You know all the time and. It, it wasn't until I learned I could make a living at it that I really, uh, you know, I really went all out into it. But, you know, for a long time, I was just shooting just to shoot just for fun because mm-hmm. I had a, I had a job. I was a tour manager of Cypress Hill. I made good money. The money that I would make, I lived in a studio apartment. I didn't, you know, it wasn't even a one bedroom. I was content. You know, I had my mattress in there. I had a 
walk-in closet, a shower, and a kitchen. That's all I needed. I was out on, on tour all the time, staying in nice hotels, you know. So most of my money I would spend on my lowrider and buying film, developing film and, and equipment, you know. And uh, that's that was my, my time off. That was my fun time, you know, creating, you know, art and doing cool uh, photography. And I basically uh, just shot, you know, the the stuff I was around. You know, at that time mm-hmm. I was around the the LA street culture, and I was around the lowriders, and you know, the living the tour life. You know, with a, one of the best bands in the world. And you know, there was girls around both of those scenes, so I sh- shoot, you know, that too. That was, you know, part of the the lowrider world at that time and part of the you know touring life there's always like you know hot girls coming to the shows and hot girls going to the car shows so i shot a lot of that and that's how i came up with the book for la woman and uh you know i just turned uh i just turned the it was kind of a at, in the beginning i had an agent it was with visage agency who mm-hmm. handled her brits and that and they would get me the commercial work and that was going pretty good for a while. And then, uh, you know, things didn't work out with the agent anymore and Visage closed down. And and that's when I thought, like, well, okay, now what do I do, you know? I don't have somebody getting me, you know, these yeah. jobs. So I had to think of different ways I could make money doing my photography. And that's when I came up with doing, you know, different, uh, you know, doing art shows, of course, selling prints. Uh, making clothing with t-shirts photos with you know photos on t-shirts i made playing cards and calendars and 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 coffee table books and that's what i would use the stuff that i was shooting for like a hobby i would use that on all that stuff you know very cool I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Esteban Orial, as well as the hundreds of other interviews that we've provided to you over the years here at The Candid Frame. Stories like these are really important to share for me because I want to share the many paths that people take to produce exceptional work and create careers as photographers. This isn't a show that profiles the, the big names that you see over and over in photo magazines or certain websites, many of whom are just trying to sell you something. These are photographers who are producing exceptional work, work that sometimes challenges and hopefully inspires you and me. It's stories like these that keep me inspired to to pick up the camera and do my own work, and I hope it does the same for you. And to continue to deliver such great content to you each week, I would love to have your help. Through Patreon, you can support the show with regular monthly donations of $2, $5, $10, $25 or more, anything in between. Your donations of any amount are the means by which we will improve the show and bring you more great conversations with the world's best photographers. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thanks. Speaking of, you know, all the merchandising, one of the images that you're really known for is uh, the one of the hands that uh, create the letters L and A for 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 L A. Yeah, um, that image ended up just blowing up in a variety of different ways. Um, tell us about the shot, but also tell us, you know, how surprised must you have been when that image just took off that way? Yeah, uh, basically, I was just doing a photo shoot and. And uh, I was shooting some uh, with a female, and she threw up the letters with the L and the A. It's like you know, hand sign. And at that time, it was um, it was more known, like in the in the gang world, as like you know, representing where you're from, you know, L.A. And um, it was not uh, a common image, you know, for most people. You know, just in that culture, in that culture alone, and and uh, and you know, I just I didn't really think about it, and I I uh, 
it went, it was like for years it was just one of my photos you know it was on a couple of a cover it was a couple of magazine covers and they would request it you know when they were doing um an editorial on my work they're like hey you have that picture and it was like not that big of a deal you know it's just one of my more known pictures but it was no biggie and then uh i threw it on a shirt and you know one thing led to another and then uh I put on a you know a couple other things. I made a candle out of it, or put it in the playing cards. And before you know it, everybody that that saw it, you know, wanted to emulate it or you know duplicate it somehow. Yeah. And it was over. You know, it became one of my most famous uh, photographs, and it's one of the most famous you know LA photographs for sure. But at the same time, it's probably the most copied photograph. Okay. You know? But then you realize the importance of like licensing from your photographs. Now you realize how much valuable it is as a commodity. Yes, yeah, if you have a you know, but it's it's kind of hard. Like how do you like I I didn't shoot that picture for that you know. So yeah. it's kind of like you know where if if you were to think of okay, I need to do twenty pictures that I can license and make you know a living off of. Mm-hmm. You know, I could never do it. You know, it's just yeah. like. It was one of those things where it was, it was just that picture took off, you know, and and you know a couple other of my pictures, you know, have just taken off, and I would never know which one they it would be, you know, if if you were to ask me, you know, before that image came, you know, it, what it is today, I would never pick that as one of yeah. my. You know, if you were to say, hey, what do you think are going to be your in the next ten years? What what 10 pictures do you think are going to be your most, you know, most licensed or most famous or most recognized? I wouldn't have picked that, you yeah. know. But it just came out that way, and, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's it good that it came out and it got, you know, seen all over the world, but at the same time, it's it's kicked me in the ass, you know. Yeah. With so many people copying it, and with a trademark law, you know, or copyright law, you just have to change something like 30%. So by people doing it with a different set of hands, mm-hmm. that changes it, you know, enough to, like now in a, in a, the judge, because I tried to uh, get some get some checks out of H&M and Brandy Melville and uh, a couple other lines that were copying it that were, you know, mm-hmm. big and obviously... They didn't have nothing to do with the culture. They were just, you know, taking from something they saw and right. seeing an opportunity to make a lot of money. So I was like, man, I'd love to be able to get a check out of that. So I asked a copywriter or a trademark attorney, and they're like, oh, no, they they changed it more than 30%, so there's nothing we could do. <sighs> and the the argument from their side, their lawyers and stuff, is... is uh, be, it's so common it's like a thumbs up or a middle finger or a hang loose or mm-hmm. a piece now so they're like oh that's you know that has nothing to do with him that's like a peace sign or thumbs up sign nowadays and I was like wow it got that big <sighs> wow your documentation of, of, of the Chicago culture um, is is fascinating and I've seen other people who have photographed it but they always seem to be outsiders yeah, you know the guys that come in, they shoot for a while, um, they document the gang life, the tats, the the cars. Um, but you're, you know, these are these are guys that you know. Yeah, you know these are these are family, these are friends. What responsibility do you feel when you are photographing and you're putting those photographs out there, knowing how you know the the outside world looks at you know that community typically. Uh, just making them look good, you know, making them look. Uh, the number one thing is never take a picture that can get anybody in trouble, you know. So mm-hmm. you won't see me doing like some of the photos that some of the other people have done. And, uh, you know, putting that out there to where somebody can get in trouble for that. Or, But the other thing is, too, is just to take a nice portrait, you know. Mm-hmm. do a nice photograph just like of anybody else you know you see you know there's people like taking pictures of you know old people or sick people or war or 
homeless people or, you know, different genres of different kinds of people that everybody sees as interesting uh, characters, you know. So I just feel like I just have to take the best portrait of them that I can. And that's what I try to do, you know. Sometimes um, some people, they get scared when they look at a picture like that because they're like, wow, you know, that's so intimidating or what have you. But, you know, it's real life, and I'm just taking a nice picture of of that person at that time. Yeah, and I I like the beauty that exists in your photographs because other people look at it and they get scared. Yeah. Or Or they imagine putting themselves in in a, in a moment where they would actually be face-to-face with, these, with someone who yeah. looks like, like they do. Yeah, yeah. But you make them, you know, give them their dignity. Yeah. You allow them to be beautiful, whether they're man or woman or boy or girl. Yeah. Um, and that's that's great to see. Yeah, some people are like, hey, you're glorifying gang culture, and what about people that are victims of that? But it's like, I'm not the first person to take the take pictures of them and I'm not going to be the last and you know definitely now it's like oversaturated you know mm-hmm. everybody and their mom has a picture of a gang member you know but <laughs> so it's like and everybody's t- and kids from the from the suburbs are posing as if they're in prison yeah you know crouching down yeah, making like a bunch the, of hand singles it's like a hashtag now you yeah. know you can go on Instagram and there's like different hashtags and stuff and you know, it's blown way out, but, you know, it wasn't because of me, you know. I'm just one guy that takes, you know, pictures here and there. Of, yeah. And I take pictures of everything, you know, of, of, of you know, I've been to 55, 56 countries all over the world, and I've taken pictures of everything. And, you know, different people know me for di- taking pictures of different stuff. Like some people know me just for the hip-hop photos, some know me for the cars, some for the women, the gangs, you know, traveling and you know it it varies, you know. Does it does it feel kind of surreal sometimes cuz like you just said, you've been all over the world, you've been in Brazil, you've been in Europe and you look at your life and then you look at some of the people that you photographed, people that you know, some of whom are dead, some of whom are in jail. Does 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 that feel kind of strange sometimes when you're you know, you're on an airplane going off to Europe or South America and all of a sudden going, I'm doing this amazing thing and yet some of the people who I'm closest to who I photograph are, you know, gone or doing time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it just makes me grateful of the choices that I've made, you know, that uh, I could have been right there with them, you know, And, and I've missed that by like seconds you know Hmm. like i've been uh a friend of mine spanky just passed away a couple years ago we were riding motorcycles together and he was right behind me and he is i don't know what happened because he was behind me and nobody was behind him there was two other guys in front of us and there was four of us riding he was the back guy and he crashed his bike and i don't know how or why or what happened but Hmm. he passed away you know, and I didn't. So there's, uh, you know, there's that, the, there's that kind of stuff that goes through your head. Like, man, that could have been me. You know, and, and then the next year, a, a truck crashed into me on my bike and totaled my bike. And, you know, I, I made it, you know. And I, I'm laying there thinking like, wow, you know, how come I made it and he didn't? And, you know, like the way I crashed, you would think that I would have got more hurt. Mm-hmm. Like he crashed, you know. Where there was no other cars on the road. It was through a canyon, and and he crashed against you know a dirt hill. Whereas I crashed against a, a big truck coming right towards me that did like a U turn from a parking space into the front of my bike, and flew off the bike. And you know, I flew about ten twenty feet off of the bike after I hit the truck. So to me, I would look at that and just be like, oh. I should have been way more hurt than I am. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people all around me have been in different situations. You know, they've been partying and they OD'd on drugs or something like that. Not not next to me, you know, but they've... People I've, I've been in my life, you know, have OD'd on drugs. And, you know, I've partied before too, but I didn't. So there's always that, you know, question in your head like, wow, you know how come I didn't OD and how come 
I didn't get killed on my bike or I didn't get shot or, you know, the cops didn't, uh, you know, catch me on that or, you know, there's just different things that always come up in my head and, and I'm just grateful that, you know, all that stuff didn't happen to me and I had, you know, I made different choices in life and uh, they worked out to where, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. With respect to cops, the only time you really have to worry about them now is just when they try to pull you for not having a permit when you're shooting. Yeah, yeah. You uh, yes, shooting, yesterday you. they gave me a ticket for, uh, I was down in the L.A. River just scouting for a thing and the cops came down there when I was in my truck and I was by the water and I had to like step on the gas more so that I wouldn't get stuck in there because it was slippery yeah. and they wrote on the ticket a uh, speed contest you know which is ah. to me is like racing you know but I wasn't I was going maybe three miles an hour in the water but my wheels were spinning because it was it was algae yeah. but the way the cop came at me he was like, hey, you want the... I was like, what am I getting a ticket for? I wasn't even doing nothing. He goes, well, I could impound the truck and take you to jail. Which one do you want? I go, I'll take the ticket. You know, it's like the way they come at you, it's real easy to, you know, in my head for two seconds, I was like, you can't take me to jail. I didn't do shit, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to just, you know, stick up for my rights, you know, stand up for myself. But I was thinking about it. Do I really want to get handcuffed right now? Do I really want to sit in a cop car and be in, in jail all night, even though this probably won't stick, you know? And then, you know, do I want my truck to get impounded? And, you know, there's different ways. Yeah. There's so many different ways it could go. They could just be like, hey, we're taking your truck with all your stuff in it that you need to work with, and you can get it out in 30 days and walk out of here. Or we're taking your truck and we're arresting you. Or you could just shut up and sign the ticket and deal with that. You know, there's so many different ways it could go, and you have to make a choice. You know, which way do you want it to go? Yeah. Well, one of the things about shooting uh, back, it's, I want to say back in the day, but it's not that long ago. No. But, you know, you were, you were free to shoot around Los Angeles and do a lot of stuff. And now, especially downtown around here, uh, it seems like everybody wants a permit. Everyone wants to get paid. I mean, you go out there with a with a camera, and all of a sudden you're a professional. Yeah. And even though you may not be making any money from what you're doing, but all of a sudden everyone's sort of policing each other while every while everybody has a camera. It's kind of it must be maddening for you. Yeah. To be able to to be hampered in doing what you do, even if you're doing it for yourself, and have them say, "Well, because of the camera you're using, uh, you need to leave or or show us a piece of paper." Yeah, it's it's uh, really frustrating, you know, because there's these um, guys down here that, like, rent a cops. They ride around on bicycles, and they they come up on you first and ask you for permits. And then you go, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're done. We're, we're moving. And then they ride away, and then you go, okay, they left. So you're shooting a little bit more, and those guys go and call the cops, and then the cops come. Where's your permit? Where, you know, what are you doing here? I'm not doing nothing. I'm taking a picture of my cousin, mm -hmm. you know. To them, you know, they just see you taking a picture of a guy or a girl, and they're like, they think, okay, he's doing a picture of that person. That's a job. He's making a lot of money. The city should be getting paid. And 95% of the photo shoots are not paid. You're doing them, you know, just because you want to do them because of the art and the mm -hmm. fun. But, uh, you know, they, they don't see it that way. They see it as... You're out here with a camera, you're getting paid. It's not even like that, you know? Like, nobody knows all the, the what goes into the photography, like what goes into making a coffee table book, how much the scans cost, how much the prints cost, how much the, the design, you know, how much it costs to print the books and then ship the books from wherever they are. Like, before you know it, you're easily into, you know, way over, like, 15 to you know 15,000 on up hmm. you know just for a small run of books and people don't realize that you know because they they think you can go on apple book and make oh i can make a book for 100 100 bucks or whatever but you know then you have to sell that book for 200 dollars to a store so you can make some money then they have to sell it for three or four hundred dollars so that's not going to happen yeah. so you got to get that book to where it comes out to maybe 20 bucks, you know, 15, 20 dollars in in uh, cost just to get the book printed. 
you know, not even factoring all the prints that you made and all the scanning oh, and all yeah. that kind of stuff and all the going through the files, picking out the proof sheets and all the time that you went through editing the each photo that you were going to pick for the book. Like, you know, you're lucky if you break even on a book. Hmm. Like, you know, every publisher will tell you, you know, like they're pretty much just business cards. <laughs> Expensive business cards. And, you know, it's more of a thing to show people you know that this is the kind of work i do and you know how much money can you make like off of books you see when you go to like a barnes and nobles there's like if you go to the photography section there's maybe 200 books in there one by one you know Mm -hmm. one book per author per subject and you're just like you just see like the the binding you know it says like la portraits that could be anything you know, portraits of what? Sailboats, of, you know, people, of couples, of kids, whatever. So what would it take to make a person pull that book down and look through it and love it and want to buy it right. and keep it at their house? You know, there's a lot that goes into this, and people don't think that. They just think, he he shot those pictures, he made a book, he's making money, that's that, yeah. you know? But, they, you know, people don't know. You know, I I invite anybody to do photography or do a clothing company or make a book, you know, like, you know, there's everybody's like, yeah, there's, you know, there's plenty for everybody. Yeah, go ahead on, brother. Mm-hmm. You know, go ahead and start your clothing company. You need to make uh, 18 dozen to, you know, shirts to make the minimum for to do one pressing of one design of, you know, so go ahead and buy the 18 dozen of shirts. Go get the artwork done, get the uh, the films printed, the screens burned, pay for the printing, and then after you're done with all that, find somebody to buy your shirts. <laughs> find a store or a person to pick one by one, you know? Yeah. It costs like a thousand bucks to make a, a t-shirt, one design. So then you're getting 10 bucks, you know, say you're selling them online on your website. You're getting 10 bucks each shirt you sell. Well, if it takes six months to you know sell all your shirts if you sell all your shirts you're getting 10 bucks at, at a time and then you know you have to spend that you're like oh i got 10 bucks today off that shirt i made 20 bucks or whatever oh cool i got some money for gas or buy a sandwich or something so by the end of the six months you've spent all your money to get the next issue yeah. so it's like a constant thing of constant, you know yeah. having to you know trying to guess what picture people would want to buy on a shirt you know it's it's crazy yeah. like when i think about it, i think like i'm out of my mind like, <laughs> doing what i do like i should have just went and got a normal job and just kept doing it as a hobby but you know i've i've made some good good choices and i made some good uh money on some jobs but all that changed around 2008 and then when the internet came in and there was no more uh magazines to work for no more um what do you call it? record labels weren't paying any any budgets for album covers because there was nobody carrying you know tower records mm-hmm. went out of business sam's went out of business um, warehouse records went out of business all these uh you know record stores cd stores went out of business they stopped pressing up you know cd booklets and now everything's online there's no uh no cost for printing magazines because everything's online so there's no no need to pay anything and there's so many hungry people out there trying to more like thirsty i'd say they're they're so thirsty to be uh have their stuff shown that they'll do it for free so how do you compete with a thousand people that'll do the same job you'll do for ten thousand dollars they'll do it for free yeah it's you know it's almost impossible but uh, that's why I've had to do the you know the merchandise so I could try and uh, make some kind of income off the pictures that I've already had for all these years, you know. And, and some of the stuff that you've done is is do some fine artwork, and you had the unique experience of exhibiting along with your father, which I don't I can't think of any other photographers that I know have had that opportunity. Tell us about that and how that how did that feel. To be showing your work along with your dad. The first time it was uh, Shepard Ferry. He had asked me to do a personal or solo show when he had his gallery on top of the Wiltern Theater. Mm. Um, and 
at that time it was just you know me showing the same thing over and over like the la fingers and the pictures of my homies and the low riding and that kind of stuff and i was like i don't want to show all this stuff one more time you know he goes well what do you want to do i go "Mm, my dad has some great photos because at that time he was more into painting he kind of pulled away from photography i thought it'd be cool to go into his archives and get his street life photography and you know to show us side by side and he went for that idea and that was great we came out in juxtaposed magazine and that went good so you know fast forward to you know 10 years later i thought we need to do that again and do it right so we hooked up with the carmichael gallery and we did you know the same thing they wanted me to do a solo show and i was like i don't want to do you know a solo show i want to do with my dad so we did like father like son and then they left la and moved to new york and I called them up. I said, hey, what are you guys doing, you know? They're all weird over here trying to, you know, do the gallery thing out here. And I said, well, what, what, have you done any shows yet? And they said, no, we haven't, we haven't done one yet. And I was like, well, why don't we do a Like Father, Like Son over there? And they said, hey, that's a great idea. I was like, yeah, you know, it was the best-selling show you ever had, the best attendance and mm-hmm. the best everything. Like, you know, you think it would work? And they go, yeah. I said, okay, well how about that for a concept we do it over there and they go yeah let's do it so they flew us out there and at that time there was a sandy um a hurricane sandy hurricane sandy so there was a power outages and all this stuff and we were like oh let's cancel the show you know everybody's got flooded and there's no power and this that and the other and they said no no you know it'd be great for the people in new york to have something to come out to and something to you know uplift them and take their mind off it and we're like okay yeah cool that's a good way to look at it so we went out there and great attendance you know we did good and came back and then uh i met up with the guys at dax gallery in in uh, costa mesa and they're like hey you want to do a show here and I go, well i'd rather do it like father like son you know kind of brand that get that mm-hmm. brand thing going on and we know it was successful already. We'd already had two shows of it, and we had to work. You know, the stuff that didn't sell, we still had. And it was, you know, it was easier to just replace the the photos that got sold and, you know, than to go and do a whole new thing. Right. You know, because that's another thing that I've learned throughout the years. I've done all these shows, and I end up with all these photos and frame, you know, frame photos from the shows you know like you don't sell out uh photography shows you know so if you put up you know 30 40 photos you're lucky if you sell five you know so you're Mm -hmm. stuck with 25 to 35 photos in frames you know big where do you put all that stuff you know so i have a place you know like a, a shed at my house where i just keep all my photos that have been framed and I try to bring those out for like, you know, people want you to be in a group show and it's kind of like uh, just a way for people to, you know, see you're out there, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't have time yeah. to go out every night and go and, and rub, you know, rub elbows with people and, you know, hobnob around Hollywood. So if somebody says, hey, you want to be in a group show, it's with this, this, this and that artist. And, you know, I'm in my head, you know, they're bringing out the, their crowd and this guy's doing all the legwork to bring out people to this event so if i can throw some of my photos that i already have framed in there you know cool i got some new people looking at my stuff and it's an event and it's cool and i didn't have to do nothing but you know drop my pictures off and show up very cool so that's you know kind of a you know where where you where that stuff goes you know like i've done maybe 50 shows you know, so if I had to do fifty solo shows of different stuff, I'd yeah, be exhausting and expensive. Yeah, I'd have a whole, you know, you know, semi truck full of <laughs> photographs <laughs> and frames. You know, well, you got to take care of that stuff too, because if people like, you know, every time I go to take my photos oh, yeah. somewhere, they they put it like there's a certain way you carry photos and frames and mm-hmm. you usually put bubble wrap in between the two photos and you put them face to face or back to back because the screws on the back that hold the the cable right. will scratch the front of the frame if you put them you know front to back every frame 
And nobody thinks about that. They just like stack up the pictures and put them in a truck or a car or whatever, and every frame gets scratched. And then it's no good for nothing, you know? So you have to take care of your stuff, you know, bubble wrap everything and put it face to face, back to back, so that, you know, it it doesn't get ruined. You can use it in another show. Mm -hmm. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. It could be anybody. It could be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Um, I would say check out my dad's stuff, you know, EddieBertoOriel.com because, you know, one, he's my dad and, uh, you know, I know, you know, he has great work and, and uh, you know, he if it weren't for her, him, I wouldn't be here, you know. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So that's, you know, you can... Uh, you know, a lot of people are like, "Hey, I saw some guy. His name, he has the same last name as you. Is, is are you guys related, or is he your brother, or what? You know, they don't even know, or they think he's my son." <laughs> and that when we did the like father like son, they're like, "Oh, I saw you're doing an art show with your son. That's really cool, man." I was like, "No, that's my dad." And they're like, "Oh, that's cool." You know, so like, just when you you think that everybody knows because you know you've right. done these shows and you you know you just think that everybody puts it together you realize that, that it's not as known as you think you know so yeah. it's good for people to you know get the facts right you know and he's like a la icon you know he has like uh there's an artist named man one that painted a mural on of him on um Echo Park Boulevard, like right off. Oh, of, really? Okay. Yeah, just uh, I guess it'd be north of Sunset Boulevard, like one block up. Oh, okay. I'll but, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, there's a big mural of him done by Man One, and you know, paying homage to him and respect to him. Because my dad was the first one to do a graffiti art show here in LA. Him and his oh, wife. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, they did a. Yeah, I think it was called Burning Desire. It was at the Pico House Gallery, and it had graffiti artists like slick and hex and skill and a couple other ones and you know that was the the first graffiti art show it had mondo and that was a i think the first graffiti piece that mocha bought and they bought really? they oh. bought it from that show so that was pretty cool and then later i was part of the art in the streets show at mocha so that was cool that you know both me and my dad had ties to, you know, MoCA museums. So it's like for me, it's a good feeling to have my stuff in in museums. You know, that's mm-hmm. when I feel like I'm I'm making progress every time I'm in a, a museum. Right now, we have a show at the California Art uh, Af- California African American Museum by USC. It's uh, called O Snap, and it's like five or six photographers that all did the the hip-hop movement out here on the West Coast. Okay, I didn't know that. I got to check that out. Yeah, so it was a good feeling to be, you know, part of that museum. And, you know, I I got another one for the resume. Awesome. Well, man, thank you so much. I really enjoyed having a chance to meet you and, uh, and talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Esteban Orial for his time and generosity. To find out more about his work, visit his website at estebanorial.com. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It helps increase our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Bluegrass Reader, Liddy Bird, and Do I Really Have To for their five-star review. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and on the Candid Frame website. Thanks to all who have recently contributed, including Nijay McQuitty, Stephen Wolf, and Martin Stevens. You guys are awesome. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.